and we're going to look at Revelation 17. Lord, we, uh, we need your Spirit to understand your Word, and we, that's true all the time. Perhaps we feel that more acutely when we're looking at something like the book of Revelation, which really taxes our ability to understand and really exposes the cultural gap between us and the first century and the images. But uh, thank you for your Scripture, which does make things clear. Thank you for good teachers over the centuries. And thank you for your Spirit who brings to mind uh, what is good and illumines in our mind what is right from your Word. So Holy Spirit, do that very thing now. Help us. Shape us. Help us to see what you would have us to see and respond as you would have us respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 17, we're not going to read it all the way through. I'll read it as we go, and we're going to read some of it only. Now, I'm very aware that a couple weeks ago, Taylor said, you know, we don't skip any verses when we're going through books. Well, we're going to skip some verses today. Um, Not because they're hard, just because it's so long. I just can't get through it all. And it's just continuing on sort of the the lament that already started in Revelation 18. But time is going to force us on. You can dig into that later on your own. And so today also, I'm not going to share a bunch of like the the trail markers of how I got to what I'm going to say, but I I will put in our general uh, Facebook workplace for the general, I'll put in some notes, just my own personal notes if you want to look at those a little bit later. I rediscovered something this week uh, on YouTube. There was a couple videos uh, for what's called Enchroma Glasses. You've seen these in chroma glasses. Or they look like sunglasses a little bit, but they are designed for people maybe with a specific kind of color blindness, but a, a profound color blindness that cannot see in color. And in chroma glasses allow persons who have never seen in color to, for the first time, see things that they've always seen in monochrome to see it in color. And whoever puts them on, the, the result is almost the same all the time. It's like it's overwhelming emotion, a lot of tears and crying. And it's really kind of heart-rending to watch this. I would encourage you to go watch it. I was watching one with like maybe an eight, nine-year-old little boy. And before he put the glasses on, they had some balloons on the couch. And his mom's like, what, what color are these? And he's like, brown, gray, dark gray, brown, dark green. Okay, put the enchroma glasses on, and he's like stunned. Like he's overwhelmed. He starts to cry and kind of whimper. He's like, now what color are there? And I have no idea how he had this sense. He's like, I think orange, yellow, green, blue. Is that purple? I could see. For the first time. So those are things he'd always seen in his whole entire life, but now with these lenses is enabled to see uh, another dimension, another texture of that, uh, some, something that he'd already seen his whole life. So go out and look for the enchroma glasses. For the last few months, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, and what we've been seeing is that Revelation gives us these images, images to the people of God. Some of them are fantastical. I mean, let's admit it. Some of them, it's hard to get our mind around them. Some of them are a little bit disturbing. But what is happening here is with image after image after image, layer upon layer of image, the people of God are, are receiving lenses to look at the world to look at things we've always seen before, but then to see them with a new dimensionality to them, to see in color where we've only seen in black and white before, to get heaven's eye view on some things. And these images provide us with some, some language. Like So over the last few weeks, we've been seeing the work of Satan, who's called the dragon, through the beasts, and today we're going to see the, through Babylon, and maybe we could adopt language that says, oh, that's dragon-like. Oh, I see that. That's dragon-like. Or the way we talk about organized earthly power, organized apart from Christ. We could say, oh, that's beastly. Right? That's beastly power. And today we could say something like, oh, that's Babylon-ish. Or to put a more stark point on it, and we're going to look at this, that's prostitute-like. Prostitute-like. The image we get today that's front and center is a prostitute. So I have to tell you, You're going to hear that word more in the next few minutes than probably you've heard it in months, right? Uh, And parents, don't worry, this is not a PG-13 sermon, but there might have to be some cleanup afterwards, but that's the job of the parents, so you'll be good. You're you're equipped for that. 
But that's the image that's front and center in Revelation 17. Last week, Taylor preached on the seven bowls of wrath. This is an expansion of bowls six and seven. And in it, we get some vibrant images through which God calls you and me to a particular kind of faithfulness in our world. And uh, we have a lot of co- to cover, we'll, so we're not going to dive real far down in. We'll, we'll kind of keep it at about uh, a 1,000-foot view. But what is this is getting at is a concept develop, that develops in the New Testament, maybe especially in the Gospel of John, of what we might call worldliness. Worldliness. Now, about 100 years ago or 120 years ago, the fundamentalist movement grabbed onto this language of worldliness, and it came to basically mean anything that was fun was worldly. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about something different, kind of related, but different. In the, in the Gospels, we see there's a way from above and a way from below. There's a way of life and being from above, a, a heavenly way of being rooted in the Lord, and a way that's rooted and coming out of, growing out of this earth that's apart from God, or life organized apart from God. That is worldliness. One place where this is captured especially well in the Scripture is in 1 John 2. We've actually already read this in our Confession of Sin, but if you'll turn to the back of your insert here, uh, 1 John 2 reads this way. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. Now, in this passage, that word lust is a very special word in the original language in the Greek. It is made up of two other words. The one word is desire and the other word is over. It's made up put together as over-desires. It means something that is desired too strongly or in a twisted manner, in a way that it wasn't designed to be desired. So not that desire is wrong. In fact, desire is created by God. It is good, but it can be twisted, and it can be too strong in that in these things God has created, we, we look for too much in them. So... The lust of the flesh would be then the over-desires of the things that we experience in our body, right? That's the, that bring our body pleasure. That's the over-desires of things like food, drink, sex, uh, stimulation, variety, uh, feeling strong, uh, lots of things that just make us feel good in our body or suppress feeling bad in our body. That would be lusts of the flesh, over-desires of the flesh. Again, pleasure is a gift from the Lord. The lust of the eyes would be beauty, desire for beauty, an over-desire or a twisted desire for beauty and that which is fine and perfect, or maybe the the beauty of the perfect idea, if you're always one of those who chase that around in your head, always looking for the the perfect way to think about something or the perfect way to say something and really loving that desire. The pride of life, that is, that is honor, dignity, respect, and craving that. So again, pleasure is good, beauty, beauty is good, honor is good. And we know it's good because God created all those things, created people with the ability to experience pleasure, created a beautiful world, and made people in his image. You can't be more honoring and honored than that. And before sin came into the world, he made all those things and said, it is, yes, he said, it is good. This originally was good, but it can also be now be twisted. And so what we have in the world, what's characteristic of the world are what we might call twisted desires that are engaged apart from how they're designed, or twisted desires engaged apart from the lordship of Jesus Christ, or twisted desires apart from covenant with God. We actually see this at work in the very first sin recorded in Scripture. 
Adam and Eve in the garden, God says, it's all yours. I love you. You have deep honor. I've made you in my image. Uh, You may eat anything. You may have anything your heart desires to put into your body except for this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And look at all the beauty of this earth. He made it, and he said it is good. But then look at Genesis 3, verse 6, also on the back of your insert. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to, make, to be desired to make one wise. Oh, I'm wise. That's the boastful pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And since that time, we have a world that's overcome with twisted desires. Now, it's still a world where God gives very good things, but we repeatedly take those things and twist our desire for them and over-desire them. And, we, and so we tend to long for the things of God, those good things He gives, but we long for it in a way that's out of covenant with Him, and that, hence the over-desires or the lusts of the flesh. And that's the world in which we live. It's just everywhere, and it manifests itself in all kinds of ways, in our, in our own sin and um, Last night, I was awakened at about 2.20, no, it was 2.18. We sleep with our windows open, especially when it's cool out to make a cool room. And I don't know what was happening in our neighborhood. I don't know if the flax heard this or not last night. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if somebody was, it was a man and a woman, and they were mad at each other. They were screaming. I'm like, who? I walked out the front door. I'm like, do I have to call the police? And it was from the back. So it was between, between the streets of the flax and the Williams live on. I'm like, what's happening? And I saw some police come. I said, okay. But, like, it was just, compl- now, the bigger problem is they woke me up. But they were really, no, that's not the bigger problem. They were fine. Like, these people may kill each other. What is wrong with our city, right? Well, we have twisted desires everywhere. And we know that because it's in us too. And so you might think, given how prevalent this is, Jesus counseled to his people to be, you know what? Why don't you just get as far away from all that twistedness as possible and huddle away and create a little holy huddle uh, that stays away from all of that and separates yourself? That may be what you think he says, but it's actually the complete opposite of what he actually says to his people. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his followers. This is the same night he's arrested. The next day he'll be crucified. He says this, also on the back of your insert. He's praying for his followers, and he says, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Right? They're not from below, out of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Do you see that? I'm not asking you to zip them away, but that you protect them in the middle of it all. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So, it's said in Christian circles often, this is a prayer that God's people would be in the world, but not of the world. Now, again, not rooted in the world. So, uh, present in the world, but not rooted in the world aware of these dynamics, but not influenced by these dynamics. That's what Jesus prayed for his followers. How is that going to happen? His followers in the world together, nourished by his word, nourished, instructed by his word, encouraged and shaped by his word. And so Jesus helps us with that today. That was a long setup for a very long passage. But fear not, we'll go through the passage relatively quickly, especially at the end. If you open your insert, Revelation 17, very top, here's the big idea that's coming across, that the Lord exposes earthly culture or the world so that his people may live faithfully in the midst of it. In Revelation, the Lord exposes or unmasks or pulls back the curtain on earthly culture so that you and I may live faithfully in the midst of it. Not so that we may run away, but so that we may be faithful in the midst of it. And he gives us this in, couple images here to, to help us see. And then he exposes it. We're going to see three things here. A heavenly vision, a heavenly announcement, and then a heavenly calling for you and me. First, this heavenly vision. Revelation 17, verse 1. And in order to kind of keep us engaged and keep us awake, we're going to read back and forth. You will read the, the bolded text, and I'll read the regular text of the first paragraph. Here we go. 
Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So, again, this is a recap of, the, of the, an expansion of the sixth and seventh bowl. That's why the angel is there. And back just before this in Revelation 16, 19, that judgment was on a city called Babylon. And that's going to come up in this text, Babylon. Now, you might ask, in John's day, what was Babylon? And we, the answer would be, well, the actual city in John's day was not much. However, in Jewish history, it was very important. It was the Babylonian Empire, which carried the people of God off into captivity 600 years before that. And its capital city, Babylon, became the symbol for the, the oppressive power that carried the people away. And it was a very wealthy and luxuriant city. So not only did it exercise power over the people, it enticed them away from the Lord. It's when they're in exile in Babylon that the very famous passage through Jeremiah comes where God tells the people, seek the peace of the city to where I've exiled you. Don't, don't run out. Don't go to the north side of the city and, and stay uh, along the, you know, on, in little encampments along the river. But instead, you go and you, you live in the city. You have children. You, um, you marry in the faith. You raise children in the faith. You settle down. It says, build gardens, build homes, have jobs. But in the midst of that all, you be distinctly my people. You distinctly my people in this city in Babylon. So all that is freighted into what is uh, in, in the Jewish mind as they hear Babylon. Okay? Not for us, but we have to get back into that context a little bit. So the symbol, I put this insert in your insert, the bottom right, two theologians named Beaky and Leon Morris. I kind of did a mashup. The theological meaning of Babylon then in Revelation is this. Babylon is the world as the center of industry, commerce, culture, and power organized independently from the lordship of Jesus. So it's the, the, all of culture that's organized independently from Jesus. It doesn't mean it's as bad as it can be. It just means it's not rooted in the confession that Jesus is the Christ and not built on that. So if we're flowing, if we're filling the literary flow of the book of Revelation, I'm going to lose some of you here, but the nerds will, will hang in there. Okay, so what's happened? Revelation 12, the dragon declares war on the, the followers of Jesus, the church. And then he stands on the shore of the sea, and out of the sea comes the beast of the sea, which we said was organized earthly power. And then we see the beast of the earth, which we said was earthly ideology. So organized earthly power, which was suppressed the people of God, and the ideology, which makes that make sense, is combined, and out of that comes a culture called Babylon. All of the culture independently organized apart from Christ. And, of course, this is sort of a, a bastardization of what is real and true, if you think about it. You have the, the gospel of the, the, the kingdom of God as heavenly power. You have the gospel of the kingdom as heavenly ideology, which comes together and creates a heavenly culture called the church. So Babylon is a counterfeit church. Later, Babylon is going to be shown to be a... Uh, expressed as a prostitute and the church as a bride. Okay, so you have this counterfeit theme going on there. So if you left for that second, please come back. We're going to look, okay. Uh, why the image of a prostitute? Right, so Babylon is not called Babylon first here. It's called the great prostitute. So I just want to talk about that image for a second. There are two women in Revelation who are contrasted. The bride of Christ, which is Revelation 19 and 20, who's the same person as the woman in Revelation 12, the faithful people of God, and here, the prostitute. There's two women in contrast to each other. Why the image here of prostitution? And now, first we'll say, I think it's pretty easy to overstretch these images and metaphors in Scripture. And I, I don't know, it's not helpful to do that. I'm trying to stick in, like, what thematically 
in Revelation and in the Old Testament prophets. And I think what's going on is this. It has to do with the nature of marriage and faithfulness. Marriage, let me just talk about what biblical marriage is for a second. And if you're married here, take note. If you want to be married, take note, right? If you feel convicted, take note, ask the Lord for help, whatever. We all fall down, right? But biblically, marriage is a covenant of self-giving love. Wherein we, we lay down our life for our spouse. We lay down our life for our spouse. We serve our spouse. We submit our preferences for our spouse. We, and this is straight scripture, count our spouse as more important than ourself. Let me say that again. We count our, our spouse as more important than ourself. Now, I just want you to stop and think, not about your spouse, but about yourself. Don't ask, is my spouse doing that? That's the wrong line of questioning. Is this my posture, right? Biblical marriage is, is other-centered. It's, it's not self-centered. There is no self-promotion. There's no self-justification, no self-defending, only self-giving. That's the picture of biblical marriage. It's also the picture of Christ's love for his people and the love he empowers and calls us to in actual marriage. Okay. Now, in that context, one of the, what's part of that is sexual intimacy that is designed by God for joy for mutual joy, even if differently experienced between husband and wife. It's designed for mutual joy in the context of self-giving love, life laying down for the other love. It's designed to be happen in the context of the covenant of marriage under the covenant lordship of Christ. Now, the reason I start with that is because that is the, re- the real and the design. Prostitution, then, among other things, is the isolation and commodification of one aspect of marriage, the sexual intimacy, pulled out of the design context in which it's, supposed, it's, it's designed for, taken as its own thing, and then twisted into something selfish because it's no longer in the context of self-giving love and it's controlled by the person desiring it. It's a selfish reality. It's ripped out of the context of covenant and somehow at the same time it profoundly minimizes what God intends and completely twists it all at the same time. I think, and so what we have then in prostitution in this context is twisted desire outside of covenant with God, which, if you remember, is the main idea of worldliness, twisted desire outside of covenant, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In the Old Testament, a main way of describing spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord was with the concept of sexual immorality, running to another God instead of Yahweh. All of creation owes fidelity and faithfulness and allegiance to their creator God. Most of creation has said, no, I do not want that. 
I want part of that relationship, and I want it on my terms. Hence the metaphor. And this passage we just read says the kings of the earth led the way in that, and the people followed after. Right? That's the picture of the world in which we live. God is giving us a lens to see, oh, that's pretty serious, and it's about faithfulness. So the picture here, for, now actual sexual sin is included in this, but first we want to see it is spiritual and faithfulness is what is being pictured here. And John is, for, is then taken into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Well, if you go back to Revelation 12, the wilderness is the place where God cares for and nourishes his people when they're, the dragon is you know, waging war on them. The wilderness is a place of safety, but it's also a place we saw when we were there, a sense of exile and the reality that we're not home yet. We're at home yet in this earth until the restoration of all things. So we say kind of tongue-in-cheek, this world is our home, but just not yet. There's a, you know, we, we taste of the goodness of the coming kingdom, but it's only a foreshadowing, only an echo of the future coming back into, into the present. We taste of it now, but the fullness is coming in the future. But he, he's taken in the wilderness as if to say this is the only place you can actually see clearly from. Another way to say this is, if we think that the world is our home as it is right now, we will never see in color. We just can't see. And God is giving us the gift of this image to see it. So put this all together again, Beaky and Morris. Babylon is the world as the center of industry, commerce, and culture and power organized independently from the lordship of Jesus. The woman, the prostitute, stands for everything that tempts, seduces, and draws people away from God, all that stirs the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So, again, I can share more about how we get there, but that's a good compendium of all that, the spiritual significance of those images. So having gotten there, let's read verses 4 through 6 together. Again, you read the bold. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of a mystery. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The first thing we notice about the prostitute here is that she is presented as attractive, fetching, alluring, magnificent, enticing, captivating. She is beautiful. She's dressed in fine clothes, gold, pearls. By the way, in Revelation 19 and 20, the bride will be described as dressed in fine linen, linen with gold and pearls. The prostitute is a counterfeit and an alluring destroyer. And the kings of the earth and the peoples of the earth run to her. And it was said earlier, they, they are drunk with her sexual immorality. And the picture there is like a drunk person that is uh, becoming incapacitated and like many who are under the influence of alcohol, unaware that it's happening. That's why there's so much drunk driving. People are like, I think I'm good. Right? I told the first service, be encouraged that your pastor can't do a good impression of a drunk. But um, like it's, the, it's the whole world saying, I think this is fine. And they're in terrible danger. Part of that is because she is so alluring who uses pleasures and twists them to, as Beaky and Morse say, tempts, seduces, and draws people away from God, all that stirs the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. She holds in her hand a, an expensive golden chalice. If you could imagine if this was a golden chalice, you might have a really nice wine glass at home. Like our really nice wine glasses cost like $4.50. You might have really nice wine glasses. 
I bet nobody has a solid gold wine glass, right? I hope you don't, really, <laughs> unless it was passed on to you. But the picture is like, wow, this, this woman is stunning, and this, is, this looks so good. Like there's, right here, so far, there's nothing that's bad that we've seen. It looks good. And, you know, this is a, one of the themes in Revelation that there is a certain naivete to thinking that destructive things look bad. If destructive things looked bad from the beginning, nobody would get destroyed by them. Part of the aspect of destruction is that it's alluring. It looks good. Naivete is what is required to say, well, it said it's good. It must be good. Wisdom is required to say, well, what is actually here? So this scene is full of glamour. It's very intoxicating. Like, how could it be bad? Here's this beautiful woman, and the got the golden chalice, and you get close enough to see what's in the cup. And it's not the finest wine. You get close enough, and what is it? It is full of the abominations and impurity of her sexual immorality, which, again, we said is spiritual unfaithfulness to the Creator God. The allurement draws you in. The glamour hands you the chalice and says, drink. And all of the culture of Babylon says, yeah, this is a pretty good idea. Drink that. You get close enough also, you see there's something written on the forehead, which is uh, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations. Remember, the for- writing on the forehead is a sign of identity. We've already seen that in the book of Revelation. What this is communicating is simply a mystery in, in Revelation, something formerly hidden but now revealed. The intention for Babylon is to create more and more unfaithfulness and more unfaithfulness, and even so that the culture or Babylon or the prostitute herself is drunk with that power and drunk on the blood of the saints, meaning that it's been so effective that people have died as a result of this, and it makes her a power hungry. So, Let's put a little bit of application here. We've got to bring this into our own life a little bit, okay? What the Lord shows us in this picture is that the worldliness that leads to destruction, the worldliness from below, and we're not talking about ple- God made pleasure, right? He made food and wine and sex and friends and jobs and made all the good stuff. He said it is good before it was twisted. It's alluring. The twisting is alluring, okay? This is what we're seeing. Illicit sexual sin is alluring. The idea is alluring. Pornography in our culture is alluring. It doesn't look bad at first. It looks good. And that is why so many people get captivated by it. And there are very few in Babylon who will say, that's not a good idea. Making others an object of desire is alluring. I mean, who's going to... We have language for this, okay? Taylor talked about language last week. I'm going to tell a little bit, okay? We have words for people like, she's hot. He's hot. You're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of funny. No, it's objectification is what it is. And it's just, it's baked into all the feedback loops in Babylon. I'm sorry, our culture. To objectify other people. Wanting to be objectified is alluring. Wanting to be wanted, to be desired is alluring. And you might say, oh, it's not that. It's just, it's just the fashion of the day. Mm, okay. Okay. We're training our young men and young women to be commodities and to be delight in being desired by other people. It's alluring. Escaping life into fantasy novels is alluring. The temptation to build power and a career as our main vocation in life, our main calling in life is alluring. The temptation to to sublimate our family and our faith and our fellowship and even our own health in the pursuit of career is alluring. 
It's enticing. It's magnetic. Seeking wealth and comfort is alluring. Trying to make our kids better than every other kid is alluring. Now, I know your kid is special. I've heard that a lot. Either we have a lot of special kids or something called regression toward the mean that eventually takes over. Anyway, um, but I know my kids were special. Maybe yours are. I don't know. Just kidding. They're not. But it's certainly alluring to think that they are, and the lust and the boastful pride of life means maybe I can live through them just a little bit, and if they're a little bit smarter or a little bit faster or a little bit better or a little bit more acclaimed, maybe I will be too. That's, that is Babylon. Being selfish is alluring. Thinking the world is about serving me and my marriage is about serving me is alluring. Seeking more excitement and more beauty and more honor is alluring. Seeking the praise and respect of other people is alluring. And it goes on. We know that. And we know it because we feel it in our own bones. We, we get that. And for all these things, Babylon or wherever we live, very few of them are going to say, you should walk away from that. But when we drink it down ever so subtly in our culture, what happens is we get numb and drunk and and, uh, non-responsive to our own danger and our own disillusionment with the one who actually really loves us and offers us pleasure and beauty and honor. And so I would just say, this is, if you have sensed, you know what, my love for Jesus has grown cold I'm not saying this is why, but I would say dig here first. (laughs) Has there been ways in which the enticement of this world has captured your heart? Let's deal with that first. It's hard to have a counterfeit lover. And again, this is the power of this all lies in the fact that it's a corruption of something good. Okay. We're really going to pick up speed here, I promise. Okay, let's see. Ver- the end of verse 6. You're going to read responsibly with me. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Wow, that's a lot of words. But first of all, you notice John also is stunned by the woman. He wonders at her. And the angel's like, hey, John, oh, what is going on here? Like, why do you wonder? He said, let me tell you what this is. This is a counterfeit. This is another piece of counterfeiting the beast. It's great, right? So uh, Jesus, this is the way, another picture of the beast counterfeiting Jesus. Jesus was in his incarnation. He was not his death on the cross. And then he came again in his resurrection. The beast was, as Taylor preached about a couple weeks ago, went unchecked before Christ came into the world. He was not, that his, his power was diminished because he can no longer deceive the nations. That is the time now. And then he will be again. He'll come up out of, the, out of, uh, out of weakness to go to the pit of destruction forever. I mean, this is this what you're, you're wondering at, John? She rides on the back of a false savior. And all of humanity who doesn't follow the Lamb will eventually be enticed to follow her. And this has specific expression in every single age. And John then is encouraged to think about it in his age. So let's just read verse 9 through 14. Don't lose steam here. First service lost steam on this passage. So here we go. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. 
Okay, those first couple of verses are part of the reason people don't read the book of Revelation. You're like, that's a word salad. I have no idea what's happening there. So I'm actually not going to dig into that too much. It's, there are as many interpretations of that as there are commentators out there, okay? Uh, it is being applied some way to, to, to the Roman Empire. In fact, Rome is called pejoratively Babylon in 1 Peter. So something's going on there. But whatever it is, whatever the contemporary manifestation was for John, there is one idea that's coming through. That's verse 13. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, that's Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. John, I need you to know something. You're living in the midst of something that's very powerful, that's an immersive reality of all the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The Roman Empire, it seems impenetrable, it seems impregnable, it seems like it can never fall. I want you to know the Lamb wins. The Lamb wins. He wins. Even if you can't see it right now, John. And then the vision zooms back out again. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled together. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The prostitute sits over or has authority over people from peoples, multitudes, and nations, which is the exact same phrase as makes up the church early in Revelation. Again, this is another counterfeit picture. But now the true nature of the prostitute is fully revealed. Not only is she alluring, not only is she dangerous, but she's limited and she's used. The beast turns and destroys the woman. Why is that? Because he doesn't care about the cultures of the world. He's after the bride of Christ. The cultures of the world are used in service to the beast to go after the lamb and his people. That's why. The beast is trying to destroy the bride and he's using the prostitute to do it, but at the end he doesn't care about the prostitute. He doesn't care about the cultures. He just cares about going after Jesus and his people. He's after you. His schemes are designed after you, after me. We've got to know that. We've got to know that the schemes of the dragon, through all of the, the ideologies and the powers of the world, all the allurements and the enticement that even we feel in our own body, are after our children. And to not believe that biblically would be to be naive. It's after our churches. After our marriages, the dragon is after our friendships. And instead of true pleasure and true beauty and true honor and covenant with God, the dragon says, hey, how about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Just let that get into the cracks of every single part of every single relationship and piece of life. That's the image we get. Now we see. And that's the image. Now we can look at things and say, hey, that's Babylonish, even if we see it in our own soul. Or that's prostitutish. Then there's an announcement. Okay, so we're going to read. We're almost done. And this, this announcement is with a mighty voice. And that's going to be you, okay? So I need you to be a mighty voice just for a second. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice. Fallen, 
For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. This is an announcement that John hears in the first century that was already true in principle, but not fully true in experience. And it would it would probably be inconceivable to almost everybody else to hear the Roman Empire's Babylon is fallen, declared fallen. How could that possibly be? There's no way. But John knew something. John had been somewhere. Of all the disciples, there was only one left at the cross, only one left to hear Jesus say words like this, It is finished. And John tells us about it in his gospel. John was there when Jesus, conquering the power of death, comes out of the tomb. He's there when Jesus, some days later, ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father and begins to reign. At that point, he can say, it is finished. Babylon has fallen in principle that there's nothing left to happen for Babylon to fall because Jesus has taken his power and begun to reign. And it's so certain that you can speak of it in the first century as if it's already happened, though it will happen future yet to us. Here's a good example. Here's a great picture of Babylon. A cut flower. It looks beautiful. There's all kinds of life in it. But you and I both know it's time is short. Well, it may last a few days. Put it in water. Put some chemicals. It might last for, I don't know, a few more days. You won't come back next year and see this flower. We could say to this flower, you're beautiful. You have all kinds of life in you. I don't even know what kind it is. It's yellow. That's all I know. But you got, you're pretty. You're fallen. Your root is severed. There, any, anything that says there's permanent life here is a lie. It's not true. Something has happened. It's been cut from life. That is Babylon. It looks good. It's alluring. It's enticing. It's fallen. And, that's, and maybe the angel had to say with a mighty voice because John just couldn't believe it because Rome looks so powerful. And maybe we need to have a mighty voice too because we live in the most luxuriant time in the history of history. And even when things are hard and the market is down and the housing markets crash, we have comfort and safety and security unprecedented in history. We need to hear Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen because something Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection, breaking into the world and beginning beginning an untwisting of desires that you and I can share in true beauty, true desire, and true honor. And because of that, finally here, there is a calling. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. We'll stop right there. God says, Oh, my people, come out of her. Not come out of her so that you will be my people. Come out of her because you are my people. Now, this cannot mean come away and huddle away. It must mean just like Jesus prayed, I want you in the midst of this world, but rooted in me and me alone and what I have done for you and what I will do for you and the grace I keep giving to you as I stand in heaven giving grace to you day in, day out through my spirit. It means we find our authority in him and no power structure in this world. It means we continue to walk in sustaining grace with him and see clearly and soberly all that's going on in this world and embrace the life that is life in him. Some of us, probably all of us in some way, in this room, because we live in such an immersive culture, we've grown numb and dumb and a little bit drunk on some things. And we've allowed the allurement and enticement of this world to creep into our life. And our love for the one who loves us grows cold. I know that. I feel that in my own soul. And all this with the applause of Babylon. In the middle of this, the one who loves us, the Savior of our lives, gives us one, one command. 
come, come. Come out of her, come to me, because you are my people. I've given myself for you, come to me. Maybe even today you've been like convicted a little bit about something. You're saying, I wonder if this is a place in my life. I know this about me. Anytime I'm saying, I wonder if, it almost certainly is. Right? Come. Run to him right there, friends. This one who, you know, nobody sees clearly. That's why we get images. Jesus saw clearly, and he entered into our world. Jesus saw clearly, entered into our world, and the the organized human power and organized earthly ideology conspired to take his life, and it did. And, but as it did, the root was cut. Babylon destroyed itself by killing Jesus. And he raised from the dead that in him, our root in him would be established permanently. And so it is. One of the ways we experience this and express this on a daily basis in this community is coming to the communion table where Jesus stands in heaven and communicates his mercy and grace and goodness and self to us so that we may not be separate from this world, but in the midst of it and in the mix of it for God's honor and for the good of this world who needs to see an alternative and a foretaste of the coming kingdom who are empowered by Jesus in community. If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to come to the table. We take it in community because we, we come, the call is a corporate one too. Come to me is not just individual, but corporate. Come to me together. We need each other. Part of the alluring aspect of this world is that we can't see that we're enticed by it. And we need other people to say, hey, Roger, that looks like the boastful pride of life in you. And at first, of course, I'd be like, well, no, I think it's this and this. And I need another friend to say, no, you're wrong. You need to come out and come to him. If that's you, come. This table is open for those who know they are a sinner and that Christ is their Savior and they want him and need him. Let me pray. I'll invite you to go get uh, either red wine or white grape juice and bread and come back to your seat and we'll partake together. Jesus, we are loved by you. We are called by you. You, you offer us open eyes. You are gentle with us when we are foolish. Thank you for all of that. Thank you for the table by which we are free to confess our sin and empowered to run to you. We do that now in Jesus' name.